Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology Today. I am delighted to talk again to Dr. Harun Ibn Ibrahim, who I spoke to last September on this channel. You are most welcome, sir. Thank you very much for having me, Paul. Lovely to be here. Uh, Harun, if you didn't know, is a research associate at the Centre for the Study of Islam in the UK at Cardiff University. And he also serves as an imam as well. Um, you can visit his YouTube channel. Uh, just Google Harun Sadat. I will link to it in the description below. So today um, I thought um, I'd invite um, Harun to talk uh, about Ramadan, really, uh, just for those of us who uh, really don't know what it's about, uh, I, I would perhaps like to, to learn more from an actual Islamic scholar, what is Ramadan actually about? And that is my first question, sir. What actually is Ramadan and what's it about? Okay, thank you for having me, Paul, once again. Uh, lovely to talk about Ramadan in the month of Ramadan as well. So it's always uh, a double pleasure here. Um, so Ramadan is uh, it's a name of the ninth month in the Islamic lunar calendar. Hmm. So I'll talk about what the word Ramadan means later on. It's an Arabic word. I'll yeah. talk about what the word actually means, the etymology of that word later. Right. And maybe later on, we'll talk about what this word, uh, this phrase, the lunar calendar means. Because to some people... They may not be familiar that uh, certain religious traditions, of course, it's not just Muslims, other religious tr traditions do follow a lunar calendar in various ways right. as well. But let's cut to the chase and talk about the month for Ramadan. There's two, um, in my mind, there's two significant events that take place for Muslims in the month of Ramadan. Hmm. Uh, one of them is the Quran, the final revelation, which Muslims believe was sent to humankind by the by the prophet uh, to the prophet Muhammad peace be upon him through the angel Gabriel, and it was the final in a series of revelations that was sent to humankind. So Muslims do believe that there was the Bible sent to Muslim uh, to humankind through the prophet Jesus and other prophets before them as well. Uh, but the Quran is the one that abrogates them, if you like, and says this is the final revelation for mankind, and it began to be revealed. In this month, so it wasn't revealed entirely in this month, but the revelation began in this month, and it was revealed over a, a prophetic career of 23 years. So the prophet began to receive revelation at the age of 40. Uh, we can always talk about 40 at some point in the future as well. The significance of 40 for many religious traditions as well. Um, but he began to receive revelations at the age of 40. And it extended throughout his life of 23 years, which is different to other religious traditions wherein uh, a book was revealed, so to speak, at, in one moment in time. The Quran was revealed over peace, over piecemeal process. Mm -hmm. And I'll talk about that a little bit later on as well. Some of the wisdoms, perhaps, why that happened, because that ties into fasting and some of the injunctions and abrogation that took place with regards to fasting as well. So that was the Quran being revealed in the month of Ramadan or the revelation began in the month of Ramadan. But the second thing which is significant for the month of Ramadan is that 
the act of fasting, the obligation of fasting was made uh, incumbent upon Muslims who, fell, who, who fulfilled certain conditions. And the month begins with the sighting of the crescent moon, and it ends with the sighting, sighting of the new crescent moon for the next month as well, for the next lunar month as well. So we'll talk about that, like I said, about the lunar and the Gregorian calendar and the differences between them maybe later on as well. So the obligation for Muslims uh, for fasting, uh, I'll talk about the Quran later, but the obligation of fasting, the second or the most, one of the most important things in the month of Ramadan, uh, comes from revelation. The obligation to fast comes from revelation. The details are found in the Sunnah, that is the saying, um, the actions, the practice of the Prophet, peace be upon him, but also the early Muslim community, broadly speaking as well. And all of this acts as a basis for the legal schools, the four, uh, four remaining legal schools to work out its details. Um, and this allows for an ethical, moral, and spiritual edifying uh, outlook to emerge as well. So it's not just legal. There's a lot of literature that talks about the moral uh, and the virtues of fasting, the morality and the virtues of fasting, the ethics of fasting as well. And we might talk about that later on as well. Just say that this fasting is not an innovation that came about with Islam, of course, previous uh, Abrahamic faith, Christianity, Jesus, according to the Gospels, of course, fasted. Uh, for 40 days and 40 nights in the desert and Christians uh, traditionally fast, uh, supposed to fast, Catholics particularly at certain times of the year. So th this is something that is widely practiced uh, in the, the previous dispensations as well as in Islam, although Islam has a particular framing of this, as, as you're explaining. Yeah, and that's a very good point, Paul, uh, that um, a lot of people think that when Islam came as a religion, as a faith, it kind of like removed everything that was there up until then. What it did was it, 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 it enhanced the good practices, mm. took on religious practices that were already prevalent from other religious communities, maybe changed them, altered them, and removed or um, you know, abrogated certain practices that were problematic from an ethics or moral morality perspective as well. So fasting was something that's obviously very virtuous. And so Islam continued as a faith. Um, God continued with that uh, practice, but regulated it in certain ways, which mm. makes it quite unique. Right. So, so the real beginning point, and I guess the central verse in all of this is in Surah Baqarah, which is the second chapter of the Quran, and verse 183. There's a series of verses that uh, I'd like to briefly, um, or even in detail, talk about them, which I think are really important when it comes to uh, uh, understanding fasting. Uh, Paul's just shared a translation there, so you, you'll have that right. with you. My, my Abdul Halim, which is my uh, one of my favorite translations. I do recommend it, by the way, for English. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Yep. So the verse 183 in Surah Baqarah, Allah says in Arabic in the Quran, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا كُتِبَ عَلَيْكُمُ الصِّيَامُ كَمَا كُتِبَ عَلَى الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِكُمْ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ So there's a, there's a number of things that are happening in this verse, but I'll translate that for you. يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا All you who believe or all believers, fasting has been prescribed for you as it was for those before you, which is what we've just briefly touched upon. And then God says, Min So this is like talking about maybe the virtue of it or the reason for it or the ratio legis for it, the illa, as we call it in Arabic, for fasting. Uh, and God's kept it quite broad. So that perhaps you will become mindful of God. That's a translation I preferred. Some people will use other translations, but I've used that one and I'll explain maybe later on why I preferred that particular translation of it. That you might become God conscious or mindful of God as well. Mm. 
So the first word, the first thing here is that the address is to the believers. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we learn straight away that the obligation of fasting is addressed to people who enter the fold of Islam. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba. Right, it's about it's for the believers, and so you have to enter the fold of Islam, and then fasting becomes an obligation for you. Then Allah mentions, God mentions, "Kutiba alaykum as-siyam." Now the word "kutiba" has many meanings. It's a verb in Arabic. Uh, one of them is writing, uh, but it has many meanings and it depends on how it's used in the context. So we won't go into it too much because that's, that goes beyond the scope of what we want to talk about today. But here, I think it's accurate to say it's a prescription. That fasting has been prescribed for you. Uh, and the word siyam is, uh, comes from the word saum. And saum literally means to abstain to abstain from something. It's a general word that just means to abstain. Mm. Now, in, in the specialization of the Islamic law, it means to abstain from eating, drinking, and intimacy, sexual relations, um, and basically from dawn until sunset. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about this in a bit more detail later on, but that's the nutshell in, 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 a, in the legal terminology, because in Islam, we have the general vocabulary of it or a general meaning of it, but then we also have a technical meaning of a word as well. So the technical meaning is to stay away from these three things during the day, essentially, with the intention that uh, one intends to fast during that day as well. Um, so this is important to bear in mind. Aside and along and important to that, central to that, is fasting is a pillar of Islam. Now, Islam has five pillars. And the first one is the testimony of faith, the shahada, which essentially brings a person into the fold of Islam. It's a contract. A person has now willingly free of any coercion, entered the fold of Islam, and now has submitted themselves to the Sharia, to the divine law, or God's commandment, or God's guidance as well. Uh, and then the prayer, the five times daily prayer, which is also a pillar of Islam, the salah, which Muslims pray five times a day. Uh, you have the charity, almsgiving, which is called a zakat, which is a pillar of Islam. Uh, you have the hajj, which is an obligation once in a lifetime to go to the sacred city of Mecca and perform the rites around there. And that's also obligation once a lifetime uh, if you fulfill certain conditions. And then you have fasting, which is a pillar of Islam as well. So these five, these five acts of worship, if you like, these five are pillars of Islam. And fasting is fundamental mm-hmm. to Muslims as well. And I think that's very, very important because it's not something that's an, that's an optional thing, if you like. It's something that Muslims must do. And Muslims do willingly. In my experience, Muslims do willingly because they find a lot of spiritual, moral benefits in it, which we'll talk about later on as well. So this verse um, makes it an obligation for Muslims to fast in a specified period. Um, and Allah also makes it clear that it's not been specified for the Muslims only. God, doesn't, God also makes it clear that this isn't something new. This is something that human beings, religious traditions are familiar with. And so earlier communities, past prophets also fasted before the advent of Islam as well. Um, so this shows the importance of fasting. Like fasting is something that's very, very important. Uh, but it also does something else, I guess, which is that it gives encouragement to Muslims uh, on the other hand as well, um, that some people might find that, you know, uh, this is a little bit of a, 
a burden, but it's not actually because earlier communities also took on this responsibility as well of fasting as well. And so this brings like a psychological um, benefit to Muslims as well, that, you know, this is what a lot of people do as well. There's, there's a lot of philosophizing that goes on, but I just mentioned one thing here that when Muslims fast, they all fast at the same time. Um, whatever they are in the Muslim world or non-Muslim world now, um, everyone's fasting right now. So whether you're in Canada, Malaysia, Australia, Arabia, wherever you are, everyone's fasting at this moment in time. And obviously, as you know, the length of that fast can vary quite a lot, significantly between the UK here and other places in the world as well. So we're all doing it at the same time. And there's this idea of like when people do it together, when people do something together, it gives people strength, gives them uh, and that's why the prayer is done in congregation because it's like we're praying together. Uh, that's why fasting is done together because we do it as a community. Charity has a communal benefit. Um, hajj, everybody does it together. There isn't like a hajj for the Brits in January and for the Americans in December, <laughs> right? Everybody does it. Everybody does it at the same time. I've never, so, thought, of it, I've never thought of it that way. And nor had it ever occurred to me that people might think that was a possibility either. But now you mention you, it. Yep, just to make that point. Yeah. And I think the reason I mentioned this is that um, people sometimes, because of the secular paradigm, people think of acts of worship as being a very private thing. Right. But Islam basically, and if you look at Islam holistically, there's this idea of you as the individual, but you're part of a community. Yeah. So it's, there's, 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 there isn't, there's, the distinction between the public and the private is not as clear as in other, other places. So when you pray, you're praying together. When you give charity, it's an, it's an individual obligation, but it's something that's benefiting society. Fasting is also something very, very private, but you do it together as well. And I'll talk about that in more detail. But what I want to, re what I want to emphasize here is that Islam is a civilization. It's not just about acts of yeah. worship, but yeah. it's about benefiting society. Uh, and that's very, very important. That's often lost on people, um, that they just restrict Islam and their practice of the faith to just private matters or just acts of worship. It's yeah. much more than that. And, and, and that's how it's, it's different now since religion. It used to be like that in the West, of course, particularly in the medieval period and shortly thereafter. But now religion is privatized. It's an individualistic, personal choice. The communal, mm -hmm. public, social, political dimensions have been completely lost. In fact, even disapproved of in certain European countries, which I won't mm -hmm. mention. Um, but uh, Islam retains that civilizational, as you call it, dimension of, of uh, religion, which, of course, was always, in fact, the way it was done everywhere until relatively recent in certain parts of the world, mainly the West, of course, where, where it's retreated into the private individual domain. And uh, uh, for me, that's a great loss because we're social creatures. We're, we're, we're religious figures who are meant to live in community rather than atomized individuals sealed off each other, which is what we are now. And it's a, a great tragedy in, in my view. But anyway. Yeah. And, and you're right, Paul. And the harm of that is that we become atomistic, individualized individuals who only care about the self and me. Whereas our faith is about, no, it's about well-being of society. So, you know, one of the wisdoms the scholars do mention about fasting is that you feel a sense of empathy and sympathy yes. Yes. for those less fortunate in society. So can you see you're fasting yourself, but yeah. your fasting has a, a, a sort of moral, cultural, societal... I'm much, much more aware of those who, who, are, who can't eat out of necessity because they, they simply don't have food when you're doing it, which is very true, yeah. Which is that then, it, then, it, then it's, it's about purging the desires of the self as well, which is about controlling the self as well. So you can see like fasting has many, many facets already while we're still going through the early verses. Yeah, 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 well. It's yeah, very, yeah. very fascinating. Yeah, and, I'm, and I'm raising these because a lot of people, when I talk to them about Islam or faith or Quran, or fasting, they sort of, even Muslims do it, they sort of secularize it without knowing it. 
and they're yeah. restricted to certain aspects. I say, no, actually, fasting has a huge impact on every facet of your life. Uh, yeah. And your and your and, and the fabric of society as well. Without going into other religions, there's not a competition. But Catholicism, for example, the, the rules about fasting, which still exist, have become less and less stringent and, and more and more minimal uh, over over recent decades. So now you have to fast. Uh, one hour before communion, just 60 minutes. Uh, mm. and, and even the fasting during other times of the year, you still drink. Uh, you know, it, it's just, you're supposed to restrict it perhaps to one meal. It's very kind of very light and minimal compared to the uh, the Islamic, uh, the Ramadan, which is uh, unchanged and unchangeable. You, you couldn't alter it because obviously it's laid down in the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet. So uh, Islam is the one that really retains the fullness, I would argue, of uh, fasting uh, and all the multidisciplinary, multifaceted aspects that you mentioned with it as well. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Um, so then Allah continues, So God mentions that people before you did this as well. Then he says, Now, some scholars do in the tafsir genre, in, 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 in the exploration of the Quran, do mention that this might refer to the Christians. But I think a more uh, a more comprehensive meaning is just to include every community because God hasn't specified a community. He's just said, Min people before you. The people before you used to do this as well. Um, so past communities did this as well. And um, this is something that's not unique to Muslims, but people before as well. And finally, in this verse, God ends, Allah ends with, that you might become God conscious, aware of God, God-fearing. Um, that it's pointing to an illah, like a reason. So can you see here, there's this revelation, which is telling you to do something, but there's also um, a reason to it as well. So it's a beautiful encapsulation of revelation and reason working together in a, in a beautiful symbiosis. So, so that you might become God-fearing. So God is pointing to this inherent quality of fasting, which contributes significantly to one's ability to become, um, to become such a person that abstains from sins. And uh, becomes God feeling as well. And God hasn't gone into the detail. He's left it to you because he, he expects you to know like what it means, right? He's, you know, you don't have to be um, spoon fed with all the details, but a human being reading that will understand that fasting has a reason. And the reason must be that it makes us God fearing and the details God has left it to us to think about. And the traditions of the prophet, peace be upon him, talk about them as well. So fasting grows into a person, the power to control their desires uh, which is really the foundation of taqwa. Taqwa means God consciousness. Mm. Uh, it comes from the word wiqaya, which wiqaya literally means shield. It means a shield. Um, so taqwa means to have a shield, like you're, you're, you're strengthening yourself. Um, and so this is something that's very, very important. You're warding off evil, you're warding off desires. Uh, and so when you're able to do that, you're able to dedicate yourself to God. And in the next verse, Allah continues, God continues. He says, that." It's quite a long verse, but there's a lot of legal implications, a lot of detail in there as well. So let me translate that for you very briefly. Um, there's an insertion here because the translation literally is prescribed for a number of days, but you would have to put what is prescribed for a, for a number of days, fasting. So that fasting is prescribed for a number of days, but whoever of you is ill or on a journey, then let them fast an equal number of days after Ramadan. For those who can only fast with extreme difficulty, compensation can be made by feeding a needy person for every day not fasted. 
But whoever volunteers to give more, it is better for them. Uh, and to fast is better for you if you only knew. Now, this verse is very, very interesting because you can't read this verse in isolation because it's going to be abrogated, as we'll see later on as well. There's some detail that needs to be worked out in the next verse as well. So let's, let, before we do that, let's just talk about fasting when you're sick or fasting when you're, travel, in, when you're traveling. Now, yeah. one of the things of the sharia of, of divine law is that it takes into consideration human infallibilities, human contingencies, right? So God knows that you're going to find yourself in certain situations where you're not able to practice the deen or the religion uh, in, a, in a way that's normative, because there's a normative practice to faith. And the Jews talk about this in a lot of detail. This is what you're expected to do. But we know that certain, certain circumstances will come upon you, which means that you will not be able to fulfill those obligations yeah. in a perfect manner. And yeah, that's one of the beauties you're of saying, You're saying mercy and, and flexibility and uh, humanity is built into the Sharia. Maybe um, some people... Uh, perhaps non-Muslims are not aware of this. It's not a rigid code that is imposed on you like an iron fist, whatever the case. No, it's flexible depending on your circumstances, your needs, uh, any any cases of necessity when you can't do what you would want to do because of X, which you're going to explain. So I, I like this humanity that's built into the Sharia, the practice of the Sharia that Absolutely. scholars, as you say, have recognized forever. Um, yeah. And then you have like in legal training, you have axioms, a qawaid, which yeah. talk about, you know, uh, there should be no harm. La darar wa la dirar. When you're doing an act of worship, there should be no harm to you and you should not be harming other people. Right. So these are like ethics, morality, virtues, humanity that uh, plays into all of legal judgments as well. Right. Um, it's not just a case of like just doing things um, sort of like roughshodly and, you know, blindly. And uh, no, it's about actually thinking about how you can, and the other thing I should really mention is that when you're fulfilling the rights of God, there's always the, full, there's always the fulfillment of fellow, the rights of fellow human beings in consideration as well. It's what we call huququllah, the rights of God, and huququl ibad. And in this world, generally, the jurists would say that the rights of humanity take precedence over the rights of God, right? Because God can forego his rights. God's not in need of you as but in terms of humanity, um, that's something that we need to maintain. So that's something that's worth reflecting upon as well. So this verse in 184 in the Quran, uh, chapter number two, it essentially gives a concession um, to a sick person or a person that's on a journey. Um, so a person who can't fast because of some sort of unbearable hardship uh, or like, for example, that if they fast, their illness will become aggravated, right? And later on, the next verse, Verse 195, Allah actually says that he does not wish hardship for you, mm, right? Mm. So you're getting your idea of ethics and morality already there. Can mm. you see? So while you're reading the Quran, I always say to people like, have multiple lenses on, right? It's not just a legal text. It's a book of guidance. It's a book of ethics. It's a book of morality. So God is saying, look, he does not want hardship for you. So he doesn't want you to unduly burden yourself as well. And most scholars have um, accepted this like understanding as well. And also this idea of traveling mm -hmm. that while Allah gives, God gives a concession to um, the person who's sick. He also um, gives a concession to the person that's traveling, which is interesting as well. Um, and it's interesting that if you look at the Arabic here, if you, I don't know if you have in front of you, but he doesn't say musafir, which is essentially a traveler. It's a fa'il. It's a description of a fasting person. But God says, safarin. He didn't say um, that if you're a traveler, he says, if you're on a journey, 
Right. right. It's very, very right. interesting. Like God uses that particular phrase in the Quran, Oh Allah suffering. Um, that- so how, would, how would you, I mean, many of us travel just when we commute to work um, yeah. uh, during, during Ramadan. That's not quite what's envisaged here, perhaps. No. A, a longer journey to another country or, you know. So, so how's the distinction? Where's the distinction yeah. come from in practice? Excellent question. So, this is the, so this this particular phrase here is it's basically pointing out that leaving home and going out is not enough to claim an exemption. So yeah. Paul getting on the tube and just coming back, you know, in ten minutes is not really considered uh, a journey. Right. Um, um, but because God says "Oh Allah, suffering." It means that you're on what's, what would be considered a journey. Like you would say, to, if you said to someone yeah. that I'm going on a journey, right? right. You know, like in English, we say, I'm just nipping out um, to the shop. Guess right? no. You don't say, I'm going on a journey to the shop. No. <laughs> <laughs> so it's that expression of like how it's understood among the people as well. Right. Um, so when you're going where something requires you to travel a fair distance. Um, now, the Quran doesn't go into the detail about the length of that journey. So it doesn't tell you how many miles or kilometers it needed to be. This is usually guided by the statement of the Prophet, peace be upon him and his companions. And um, Judas have come to different conclusions. One of them is what could be covered um, by walking in three days and three nights. So some scholars would say 48 miles. There's a lot of differences of opinion on this. Um, some people just say, look, whatever is considered linguistically or in your community as traveling, that's enough. But you right. see, I mean, on, on Wednesday, I mean, is that is the case? On it's tomorrow now, um, I'm actually flying to Toulouse in France from Heathrow. Yes. <laughs> I actually don't think of that as a journey because I'm always popping over there yeah. uh, um, because it just takes an hour and a half ish. Is I mean, that's what a good 500 miles or so. But that, yeah. that, I, I don't mean to. I'm not asking for Fiki advice now. On yeah, filming this. But do you see what I mean? It, it's it's in my mind. It's actually not a long journey at all. And yet, yeah. in other way, it is because it's. Another country, many hundreds of miles, flying in an aeroplane. Sort of mean. So, anyway. Yeah. So I would stick. I would leave my legal hat on and say I would stick to what God has said, which is stick, try and stick to the the most epistemologically certain way of understanding it, which is what God has said, which is that you're on a journey. Yeah. Um, which is what I do because I follow the I I try to follow the Hanafi school of law, mm-hmm. and one of the principles that um, they try to maintain is they try to stick to the literal word of. God, because that's because they're all about epistemology, certainty. So God has said, suffer and journey. We're on a journey. You're going to Toulouse. That's a journey. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Paul, you're okay. Uh, I think it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but obviously, scholars then do get into details around mileage and stuff like this as well. That's, that's something that obviously we're not going to go into right now. Um, and then they talk about other injunctions around um, in the books of Hadith uh, and the books of Fiqh. They do talk about how long would you need to be away and so forth. But the general ruling I want to just point out here is that when you're traveling or you're sick, there's a there's a concession for you mm. that you don't have to fast. That's that's a key thing I think here. Uh, for you, but, uh, but, but sorry, but just to clarify here, but you make it up later, don't you? It's not like you I'm going to talk about that. Yeah, you do the yeah. other. You, you don't yeah. get off. You're not off off scot free, so to speak. You still have no. to do it, but at a later date. Yeah, later date as well. So, um, so from here, right? You're right, Paul. So this, let's move on to that discussion. So right here, um, the rulings that anyone who intends, broadly speaking, to stay out for 15 days um, is considered on a journey. So for those 15 days, they don't have to fast if you don't want to. Right, 15 right, But they still have to make up for it, like you said as well. Now, we're going to talk about a qadha, which is the making up of the fast as well. Because God says in this verse, min ayyamin then a number from other days. In other words, outside of Ramadan, you need to make up from them, right? So a sick person or a person who is traveling um, is still obligated to fast or make up the fast that match the number of days that he could not fast during the month of Ramadan as well, mm. right? 
Um, so you have to, God is basically telling you, you have to make up for them, right? Um, so فَعِدَّةٌ مِنَ يَامِنُ خُنَّ Now it's really interesting because the particular verb, particular construct of this uh, phrase, God doesn't tell you when you need to do it. It's up to you when you want to do it. You could do it all in one go. You could do it immediately after the month of Ramadan. You could cheat like some people do in, do it in winter months, right? <laughs> I thought sure. of that. Um, cheating, but yeah, it would be, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not cheating, but I guess some people would do it that way because of medical reasons. I mean, like there are people who would, who would for medical reasons and still want to fast, would fast in winter months because it's shorter. So I guess it's not cheating. I would, that would be disingenuous. But what I'm saying is that you can do that if you want to do as well. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so a number of days, God does not restrict this. Um, they could be at random. The choice is open to the believer. Okay. Um, so this is something to bear in mind. Now. There is, alongside that, um, alongside making up for the fast, there's something also called a ransom or a fidya for misfast as well. So, so there are those who have the strength to fast. Um, um, so those who have the strength to fast are not restricted by sickness or, or travel, but for some reason, they have the option of fasting. Um, and so there was initially in the early phase, um, I'll talk about this a little bit more, but early, there was an option for the Muslims to fast early, if they couldn't fast to make up for them and pay fidya. That's abrogated now. But the idea is that if for some reason your illness is such, or your sickness is such that you're not able to fast, then mm. you can pay what's called a fidya. That's an amount of money that you can pay in compensation for that. I just want to kind of go through something very, very interesting here, which I think is really, really important. And it's to do with pedagogy and the Quranic way of teaching believers in the early phase, but also for us as well. Now, this injunction uh, of people who are perfectly fine and they're allowed to fast for some other, they, they, they would be allowed to fast for some other day, uh, or sorry, to give charity if they're not able to fast. This was early on in Islam. This injunction or this, this ruling was allowed. Um, and the reason for that is that it was, um, there was a stage process. It was allowed, it was made, it was done so that and the early Muslims would familiarize, familiarize themselves with fasting, right? But then it was abrogated for normal, healthy people. So initially they had the choice, but then God later on, he abrogates this as well. Um, so um, this is something to bear in mind as well. And you find many, many uh, scholars talking about this as well, um, that a person, who, uh, a person who doesn't make up the fast, right? So, sorry, a person who doesn't fast needs to make up for them. Mm. Right, unless they're ill or they're traveling as well. So um, there's these three changes that I want to uh, point towards. There's a tradition from uh, Mu'adh ibn Jabal, who's one of the companions of the Prophet. This is mentioned in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad. He, he basically describes um, elsewhere as well. He describes that even when it came to the five times daily prayer, um, during the early period of Islam, there was a phase process. So mm. Muslims weren't given this obligation right straight away. There was a phase process of how uh, acts of worship were mandated. And that was basically to facilitate ease for people, to allow people to sort of find their way in Islam, as it were. And this yeah. is very, very important because some people, you know, when they become Muslims, I always joke about this, but I say that when they become Muslims, like they really force everything upon them. Mm. And we need to understand that we need to basically give people an opportunity and train them, priority, prioritize things that really, really, they really need to do as Muslims mm. and things that are like optional stuff, we can teach that later on. And so what happens here is that in the, in the divine pedagogy in the Quran, if you like, is that there's stages in fasting as well, just like there were stages in the performance of the prayer as well. So, for example, when a prophet, peace be upon him, came to Medina, he used to fast three days in a month. 
And on the 10th of Muharram, Muharram is one of the months of the Islamic lunar calendar as well. And then the command came to observe the fast of Ramadan. So, the verse that we're discuss- discussing upon. So, mm-hmm. what happened was um, there, there was an option to either fast or to pay ransom for the Ramadan fast. This was the f- initial first stage as well. Um, but the Quran says, as we've just read, it's better for you to fast. That's why you have that phrase there. Right? Because people might understand that, oh, why, why would God say that? Right, but God is saying that this is because this was allowed in the first phase. People had the option, right? If that makes sense. Um, so this is something that's um, very, very important to bear in mind. Then God reveals another verse, which is the next one, which we're going to cover. That Farman Shahida min yasum. This is the second phase, if you like, that whoever witnesses a month must fast therein. So it's now he's taken away the option, right? that there's no alternative except if you're sick or if you're traveling. So can you see now, like, God's bringing this sort of like, right, now you need to fast. You don't have the option anymore. Um, and then after these two stages, there was a third stage where in the beginning, uh, there was permission to eat, drink, and have intimacy uh, after sunset, um, only if you did not sleep after breaking the fast. Right. Imagine doing that in Britain. Right. Um, so did not sleep after fasting. Uh, and, and so this was like an indicator, because if after breaking your slap, fast, you went to sleep, this was taken to be an indicator of the beginning of the next fast. Yeah. But naturally, drinking and marital inter- intimacy would have been prohibited. But then Allah says, oh, this will continue, will continue. But Allah says in the next verse, the reason I'm mentioning this is when you read these verses, it is sometimes if you don't know the chronology and the history and the abrogation, people get confused. So this is why it's dangerous just to read the Quran literally. Like you have to try and understand uh, history and seerah and all of these other sciences that we, we've been talking about in, in, in previous conversations. And then God says, it's been made lawful for you during the night of fasting to have intimacy with your wives, right? So you can eat and drink at night until the break of dawn. So you, there's no condition now that, you know, you have to stay awake or something like this, okay? So uh, this is like the three-layered, three-phase process of how fasting came to us the way that it did. And this is something that's very, very interesting. The reason I mentioned this is that you can see divine pedagogy at work, where Islam is a religion that, you know, it kind of like builds people slowly. And I think a lot of times when we teach young Muslims or people who are practicing or interested in practicing Islam, we've got to understand their human condition, their, their stage in their development as a believer. Oh, Haroon, uh, we've lost your microphone, by the way. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. So we lost uh, you. Sorry, my mic moved. Um, so I think that's important to bear in mind as well. Yeah. Um, right. Um, so that's, kind of a lot, a lot about fasting. Mm. We, we also find in next verse, verse 185. So we're still in the same chapter. We're just yeah. following the verse. And I'm trying to, what I'm trying to do is I don't going through the verses. I'm giving you context. So you kind of like can follow the journey here. Mm. Then God talks about the Quran. Shahru Ramadan alladhi unzila fihi al-Quran hudal linnas wa bayyinatin minal huda wal furqan. So Ramadan is a month in which the Quran was revealed as a guide for humanity with clear proofs of guidance and the standard to distinguish between right and wrong. So whoever is present in this month, if you find this month, let them fast. So can you see the third level 
has come in here, the third stage. Um, but whoever is ill on a journey, then then fast on equal number of days after Ramadan. Then it's really, really interesting. God intends ease for you, not hardship. Yeah. This, is, this becomes like an axiom, if you like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is very, very important that God does not want you to overburden yourself. doesn't want you to physically harm yourself, put yourself, your life in jeopardy. This is very, very important. And the Sharia completely recognizes this in, in, in every way, shape and form as well. So mm-hmm. it's a month where the Quran, which is the word of God, we believe the Kalamullah was revealed in time to humankind as the final revelation in a long series of revelations. That is previous scriptures such as the Bible and the Torah as well. So there are many merits of the month of Ramadan, um, but it's an, this is really an extension of the previous verses um, because Allah says, in the previous verse, right? Days, a few days. And, and, and verse 184, if you look at that, it's a bit vague, right? Um, but we know now that this is the month of Ramadan because it's clear now, because God's talking about the month of Ramadan as well. Hmm. Um, now, there's a lot of uh, scholarly discussion around other revelations being revealed in the month of Ramadan as well. So I'm just pointing that out. Um, so other scriptures, they say, uh, were the book of Psalms, for example, some scholars say was revealed, for example, uh, some scholars would say on the 12th of Ramadan. Um, so there's all these discussions. Ibn Kathir mentions these in his book. So those who are interested can read that up there. But they do mention like there were other scriptures that were revealed also in the month of Ramadan. Again, something not unique to the Quran then. Yeah, right? yeah. So yeah. that's interesting as well. Um, so, but the difference I guess here is that they were all generally revealed in their entirety, whereas the Quran was re- the, the revelation began in the month of Ramadan as well. All right. Um, so it was revealed in a night of power. Maybe we'll talk about that in the last 10 days of Ramadan, because that's also something that's mentioned in the Quran in a mm. separate chapter. So we might leave that. Uh, the, the, the revelation on the night of power because that probably deserves a bit of um, its own uh, time and discussion as well. But God says, in this verse that we're covering, that whoever witnesses this month must fast therein, right? Shahida uh, comes from the word shuhud, which means presence. If you're alive and you're a Muslim, of course, and you fulfill all the conditions, then you must fast in this month, right? Um, so um, it's an obligation for the one who is present in time in that month of Ramadan to fast throughout that month, okay? And so there's no choice now of paying ransom like you had initially, right? And it's been abrogated. This is why you need to know the laws of abrogation as well, right? If someone just takes a verse from the Quran and says, well, God gives you the option. No, you have to read the second verse or the third verse after that, right? And I think this is a folly that a lot of people fall into, a, a, a problem a lot of people fall into, that you have to read the Quran and the Sunnah in a holistic manner as well. Um, the, so if you find yourself in the month of Ramadan, like even if you were to, theoretically speaking, if you converted to Islam in the month of Ramadan, right, the moment you become a Muslim and you convert Islam, the fast becomes an obligation upon you. You don't need to make up for the previous ones because the, you weren't a Muslim then. Can you see? But the moment, say on the 15th or the 20th of Ramadan, you became a Muslim, the fast becomes an obligation upon you. Or you became Muslim or you became sane. Say you, were, you weren't health, so there's something wrong with you. Now you've got your sanity back or um, you reach the age of puberty in the month of Ramadan, um, or for women, yeah, so when they become in a state that they're pure, then they have to start fasting again. 
right? So this is something to bear in mind as well. And there's a lot of rulings, which I don't really want to go into. Uh, but it's interesting. Now, if you look at the next verse, and I really want to bring this out because I think this is really important. Ostensibly, the next verse doesn't seem to be connected to the month of Ramadan or fasting or to the Quran. It's verse 186. God says, It's a lovely verse, isn't it? Yeah, it's a beautiful verse. And it's just like, if you aren't, if you're not familiar with the with the construct of the Quran, you'll be like, what's this verse doing in the middle of fasting and Ramadan? But it's actually very, very insightful. Hmm. When my servant asks you, he's, he's, he's talking to the prophet. When my servants ask you, O oh prophet, about me, tell them, if you like, I am truly near. I respond to one's prayer when they call upon me. So let them respond with obedience to me and believe in me. Perhaps they will be guided to the right way. It's a beautiful verse. Um, it's something that you know everyone should really memorize and cherish and hold on to because it's 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 very intimate mm. the way it's mm. the way it's uh, constructed as well. Yeah. It's telling us God is very near to His servants. You know, just when you read it, that's the immediate impression that you get as well. Um, so while we're talking about injunctions and the merits of fasting in the previous verses, um, the previous verse talks about uh, and the next verse talks about fasting again, but this one talks about Allah's God's special grace. That he hears our prayers and he answers our prayers, right? That fasting, if you like, is a difficult obligation despite the concessions and the permissions. And it's a test for us because we believe as Muslims that this world is what's called Darul Imtihan, the world of tests as well. Um, but God reminds you that, look, supplicate to me. Ask mm. for my help. I'll make it easy for you. And right. so when you're praying in the month of Ramadan, which what Muslim Muslims are doing right now, God will respond to your prayers. Right. And so it's actually like very fascinating because in your most difficult moment, if you like, for some people, when you're bearing hardships, you're closer to God. You can draw close to God. Mm. Right. So in your moment of difficulty, in your moment of hunger, when you're not eating and you're not enjoying the normal delights of life, which are perfectly permissible for you outside of Ramadan or outside of the days of Ramadan, uh, the, the idea here is that you've been given this. Um, comfort that you know turn to god in your most difficult moment as well and so um this tells you to supplicate as well this idea of supplication to god as well and that's you know your fasting will be accepted and ask god to um act, like there's a there's a tradition that says uh, that's when you're fasting there are times when your prayers are accepted one of them is just before dawn just before the sun sets rather in the evening that that's a moment where God's mercy descends and God's mercy descends and your prayers are likely to be accepted as well. Okay, so this is something to bear in mind. The final verse before we sort of just uh, go into some more conversations is this verse 187. It's a very long verse, verse in the Quran, verse 187. Yes. Um, and God gives, so this is the third level, which is God giving permission now for you to have intimacy with your wives during nights preceding the fast. Right, but he also says something very, very interesting. Given our whole gender discourse nowadays, your spouses are a garment for you as you are for them. It's very interesting. It's very beautiful. It's eloquent the way God talks about them. So this talks about how certain uh, things happen. But God says now you are free to eat and drink in the evening and to have intimacy with your spouses in the evening if you show, if you so will, will to do so. So this is mentioned here. So this is like God making easy. This is the third level, and which is the final level, if you like, 
in the Quran. Then God talks about other things, which I won't go too much into as well. But God says, It is made lawful for you. Um, that This tells us that the act made lawful through this verse was unlawful before, because God would only say something has been made unlawful for you if something was unlawful before. So this is why you know, having a good understanding of language and construct of language is very, very important as well. So there's a, there's a famous tradition from one of the companions, Barra bin Azib, may Allah be pleased with him. This is mentioned in Bukhari as well, that in the early days when the fasts of Ramzan were made obligation, um, the permission to eat, drink, and have marital intimacy with wives was subjected to condition that you can't go to sleep after you break the fast. We've talked about this before. So yeah. God now has, uh, you know, so the practice was to have a post-iftar nap. If you break the fast, you'd have a nap. In the UK, you don't get much time for that. Uh, you have to go for a late night press. But this is just basically alluding towards that as well. Um, now, um, I guess there's other things that we can talk about, uh, which I won't go into detail. But I think you've got a broad theological understanding from the Quran itself as to what fasting is. Uh, and I think that's kind of like enough for us for today. Yeah. Um, there are like traditions that go into a lot of detail about fasting, which we haven't even touched, to be honest, what are called the virtues of fasting. We've just basically talked about the basic construct of the verse of the Quran, the verses in the Quran. There are many virtues that you'll find about uh, fasting as well. Uh, so, for example, a prophet, peace be upon him, is reported to have said, that when the month of Ramadan comes, the doors of paradise are flung open. Yeah. And um, i.e. God's mercy descends and and the doors of the fire are shut i.e um your desires the devil is restrained in these months right so that's the kind of uh, one virtue that you'll find in this um another one a beautiful traditional prophet peace be upon him which is that whoever fasts in the month of ramadan with faith and having a good opinion that god will reward them for their faith uh, for their fasting, their sins, all their previous sins are forgiven as well. So fasting is uh, a means of forgiveness. Mm. There's a very, very interesting tradition, which I want to share as well, where the Prophet, peace be upon him, um, it says from God, Every deed that you do is multiplied by 10 at least. From 10 to 700, like depending on your sincerity, for example. But then he says that God says, Illa psalm, except for fasting, it's made as an exception. When you fast, you do it for my sake, and I will reward you with it. You leave your desires, you leave your food, you leave everything for my sake. That reward I will give to you when you meet me on the day of judgment, when you meet me in paradise. Mm. Right? So it's, it's secret between you and God. And I think that's a very, very... A powerful traditional yeah. prophet, peace be upon him. Mm-hmm. I'll share one more tradition, um, which is that the prophet, peace be upon him, is reported to have said, farhatan. For the person that fasts, there are two moments of joy. There are two moments of joy. Now, I always tell my students that when you read hadith, um, and the prophet talks about things to do with the afterlife and to do with things in this world, there's always a connection between them. Like the prophet is connecting... Um, metaphysics with this world. It's very, very fascinating. A lot of people don't ap- approach traditions in that way. So he has a good example. He says, that there's a joy when you break your fast because everybody loves to have their sip of water and their dates. And it's, it's nice to have that or your cup of tea um, when you break your fast. So you enjoy that. 
And that's a perfectly permissible enjoyment for you to have. But then he says, there's also a second joy for you when you meet your Lord. Uh. So can you see fasting is such a mm. great act of worship that it's connected to your Lord directly. This idea of abstaining, right? And it's very, very powerful as well. So I think I'm going to stop there because we've gone quite a lot into the verses. Um, but and some traditions of the prophet, peace be upon him. No, that's fantastic. Well, thank you uh, so much. Uh, it just shows that the very multifaceted, rich, profound um, experience in the theology and the metaphysics of it. it it's uh, and as you say, there's a civilizational dimension to it as well. It's just a rich phenomenon, and uh, it's marvelous. And uh, one of the reasons I wanted to invite you on is that non-Muslims, particularly, just just in a very small way, to begin to appreciate the depths. And the breadths and the the riches of uh, Ramadan. It's not just about not eating. It's it's obviously so much more. And how it connects. There's continuity with other religious traditions throughout history, the previous dispensations uh, as well. So it's a really a global uh, phenomenon. But it, it's uh, I, I like the fact that the the uh, uh, it, it's retained its purity. It, this this uh, the Ramadan. It's not been corrupted or changed. It's from the very beginning in the Quran to today. It's the same phenomenon um, and the, the same rights and same expectations and rewards and uh, and pleasures and uh, and uh, encountering one's Lord in in the way you just mentioned at the end there. So it, it's a, a, a marvelous um, a time of the year for Muslims. And and um, thank you so much. Uh, Harun, for giving your valuable time to explain to us um, some of these many facets of Ramadan during Ramadan as, as well. So that's a, such a privilege. So thank you so much indeed for that. Thank you. Okay. Well, until next time. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Thank you very much, Paul.